All right, folks, this is it. This is the final installment of our interview series with Timothy Alberino. This is the Sharpening Report, and I am your host, Josh Peck. If you missed any part of the series, or if you want just if you want access to the whole thing, head on over to dailyrenegade.com right now and please get a membership. You won't only get this series, but you'll get many other series. We have five different shows, and you get full episodes of all of the shows, not just the free previews that you find on YouTube. So it's only $10 a month or $100 a year. If you can afford to do it, get the $100 a year because then you get two months for free and you don't have to think about it for a whole other year. It is an excellent, excellent deal. But you'll also have full access to this entire series, even if YouTube deletes parts of it or if they delete the entire channel, it will be available at, at dailyrenegade.com. So make sure you go get a membership, log in, click on Sharpening Report, and you will find the entire series there. Without further ado, here is the final part, part four, the conclusion of our interview series with Timothy Alberino on his new book, Birthright. Enjoy. All right, we welcome back to the show for the final part, the real final, final part, uh, Timothy Alberino. Thank you for coming back on the show, and thank you for agreeing to do this last part. I know that we were originally going to try to uh, squeeze in everything of the, the last part of your book into part three, but that clearly wasn't going to work. Uh, we we talked a lot about a lot of things, but we got about three hours into it. We have two more really big topics to talk about, plus anywhere else you want to take it, and viewer questions. There was just no way we were going to be able to cram that in into the last 10 or 15 minutes of the show last time. So where we left off, uh, we were just starting to talk about the post-human paradigm, specifically Grin Technologies. So what are Grin Technologies, and how are, how are these going to be utilized in the end of the age? Uh, Grin is an acronym that stands for Genetics, Robotics, Artificial Intelligence, and Nanotechnology. And those are kind of the four primary streams in what's known as emerging technologies. And there are others, um, but what emerging technologies are uh, as it relates to human biology is uh, they represent technologies that are going to fundamentally transform our biology. And ultimately, when these technologies converge, and that's why this is called the age we're in right now, uh, technologists refer to it as the hybrid age, interestingly enough. And what they mean by that is that these emerging technologies are converging, they're hybridizing. And the convergence of these technologies is going to lead to a post-human paradigm, ultimately. So how far away are we from that post-human paradigm? What does that world look like? And are we entering into it now? Because, I mean, I remember even thinking back in my old life. I, I'm not that old. I'm 35. But I remember a time before the Internet. I mean, most of my childhood was pre-Internet. And it's a totally different world we live in today. And it seems to be only changing faster and faster. Are we entering into that time now? And what, how much different is that world going to look like? We are in the beginning of we are in the be the very beginning of the road that leads to post-humanism we are at the very beginning and the transition between human and post-human is called transhuman that's why it's called that's what the word trans is indicative of it's a it's a trend it's a transition it's transitory so transhumanism is not the the end game rather post-humanism is the end game. And, and, and as I said, we're at the very beginning of this long road. Uh, the, these technologies are developing very quickly. 
but it's still going to take time because you have to, it's not just the technology itself that has to come together in order for this to give rise to this post-human paradigm. It's also, it's also the philosophies and the doctrines that are associated with, that are associated with post-humanism. Uh, and there are, there are things that have to transpire, I think, before people are willing to accept, uh, willing to forfeit their humanity, because that's what post-humanism is. It's a forfeiture of the human condition of humanity. Uh, I personally think that we're probably, we're probably at least a couple of hundred years away. Um, I maybe even 300 to 500 years away from, uh, from a time in which, and, and this is a time in which I, 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 I portray in my book, uh, a time in which there are, there are almost no human beings left on the planet. That's what I mean by a post-human paradigm. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dystopian nightmare in which, in which the planet is nearly bereft of the human species. And again, I would, I would say we're a few hundred years, let's average uh, a few hundred years from, from that, from that uh, contingency. And some of the leading transhumanists today, a lot, a lot of them, the ones that I've talked to at least, they, they also sort of kind of tout themselves as philosophers as well. And uh, I've, I've kind of tried talking to some of them. I actually debated uh, Zoltan Istvan. It was, it was a really good debate. We fundamentally disagree on everything, but we get along, yeah. we get along well. Um, but, but one thing that I, I, I couldn't break through is the philosophy of that, you know, and I, I'm sure each transhumanist kind of has their own spin on this, but basically we have to take control of evolution and guide it towards our own end. Yet, according right. according to them, evolution is how, you know, undirected, just unguided, chaotic right. evolution Random. is how we, yeah, that's how we got here. And I could never really get a solid answer on how, okay, if it, if it got us this far, and I, I don't believe in evolution, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate for them, but if 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 evolution got us this far, why would we think that it couldn't take us where you already want to go anyway? Why would we want to guide and direct that? And a lot of yeah. times they'll say, well, you know, we want, we got to defeat death. Death is a disease. And they usually pivot to that. So what, what's kind of, what's your opinion on uh, sort of the philosophy of transhumanism? Well, this, what, what, yeah, this is what Barbara Marks Hubbard, the late Barbara Marks Hubbard, she died, I believe, I believe she died this year, if not last year. Uh, she, she coined the phrase evolution by choice, not by chance. And this is part of the philosophy, the, the, the creed of directed evolution. And that's, that's what we're talking about, directed evolution. Evolution that is directed by the human species. We're directing the course of our evolutionary upgrade. Uh, this, of course, began with it, Darwin laid the groundwork for this. We talked about this last time. And then, and then but the problem with evolution uh, by natural selection is that it's not going anywhere. It's random. It doesn't have a purpose. And so uh, enter, enter Friedrich Nietzsche, who, who supplied evolution with a purpose. Nietzsche said that the purpose of evolution, it wasn't random, uh, it wasn't happenstance, that evolution had a purpose, and that purpose was to bring forth the overman, uh, the ubermensch in the earth. And the overman would be as different from man as man is from an ape. Uh, thus spoke Zarathustra. That was uh, a quote from from Nietzsche's uh, Nietzsche's book. Thus spoke Zarathustra, and 
so the Overman is 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 the ultimate, the pinnacle of human evolution. And you're right. Um, before Nietzsche, there was no purpose for evolution. Evolution was a process that was just taking place on Earth. That was random selection. Um, it was the only purpose of evolution, if, the, if, if it had a purpose at all, was just survival, was to propagate and, and, to, and to, uh, to proliferate one's genes. And uh, which, interestingly enough, you know, people like Richard Dawkins and, and some of these famous evolutionists, they want to claim that evolution has no purpose. And then they assign it a purpose to pro proliferate genes, you know, to propagate the, the uh, uh, um the selfish gene, uh, what uh, Dawkins, how Dawkins calls it, and so that's assigning evolution with a purpose. But you can't do that if you if you don't believe that evolution has a purpose. You can't then go and assign it with a purpose. Something that doesn't have a purpose uh, doesn't doesn't exist. Everything has a purpose. Life has a purpose. Life was given a purpose. And indeed, purpose is the is is the is the impetus of life. Without purpose, there would be no reason to propagate. There would be no reason to reproduce. So obviously, there's an underlying purpose here. And Nietzsche realized that. And he called, he was a proponent, as I said last time, of, of the theory of evolution. Um, but, he was, but, but he did not like Darwin's mechanism for evolution, which was natural selection. So he invented his own mechanism for evolution. He called it the will to power. And so the purpose of evolution was... was uh, to uh, was to produce superior human beings on planet Earth, the Ubermenschen, the Overmen, and so uh, um, later on after Nietzsche, uh, the uh, the proteges of uh, of uh, Helena Blavatsky, the famous occultist Helena Blavatsky, the Theosophist, the founder of of the Theosophical Society such as Ellis Bailey, began to take this idea of Nietzschean evolution, not Darwinian evolution, Nietzschean evolution. And they began to build a, a doctrine around it, a, almost like a new religious creed, evolution by choice, not by chance. And of course, that was Barbara Marx Hubbard who coined that. And Hubbard was, to some degree, a, 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 a student of Ellis Bailey. And others besides. Uh, and so um, and so now you have a scenario in which we have two streams. And I, I write about this in the book. You have two streams running parallel right now as it pertains to posthumanism. You have one which is a, a technological stream. It's a scientific pursuit. And this, again, it, it encompasses all of the emerging technologies. Technologies, all of the all of the biotechnologies, including the green technologies, and their their stated goal, ostensibly their goal is to improve the human condition, to reduce suffering, to extend life, uh, just the overall the overall betterment of the human condition. So you have the scientific, the technological stream, and then over here on the on on, on this side you have running parallel. You have the metaphysical, the, the philosophical, the religious stream, those three things really combined. 
And over here, you have not so much focusing on the technologies, but focusing on the idea of um, mankind reaching his highest potential, spiritually speaking, metaphysically speaking, um, that man is to evolve into something um, like a god, a transcendent purpose for mankind. That we're supposed to become like gods ourselves. Um, uh, again, evolution by choice, not by chance. So at some point in time, these two streams are going to converge. So you have over here, you have the convergence of the grim technologies and, and, all, and, and, and the convergence of all of these technologies in the hybrid age. But then after at the same time, you're also going to have the convergence of the technology with the theology, so to speak. And this is, is going to this is going to manifest in a new religion, which we talked about last time, which I coined apotheotheism. And apotheo derived from the word apotheosis, which means to, be, to, to become godlike, to deify. Um, and um, and, theism, and, and uh, theism, um is the belief in the gods. Mm -hmm. So you have, you have this combination of these two concepts that that the gods are real so we believe in the gods they do indeed exist so there's no atheists in the post-human future the gods do indeed exist and we shall become like them so you can see the synthesis that's happening here between the uh, the evolution not necessarily darwinian evolution it's more nietzschean evolution and the religious component um uh, which involves, uh, besides uh, the theosophists, besides uh, the protégés of, of, of Blavatsky, you also have the Thelemites, the protégés of Crowley mixed in here. And, by the way, you also have the emerging church over here. You also have the emerging church, and you also have the Catholic church. Components of the Catholic church are over here um, in, this, in this. So it's not just New Age. Uh, the emerging church... The emerging church movement is sort of the modern, the new modern, chic, um, uh, uh, the uh, the trendy new church movement that is adapting to the social norms, that is a, that is adapting to the zeitgeist of the 21st century and trying to be, you know, hip and and uh, and appeal to millennials. I think everybody kind of knows what those churches look like. They're very light on the gospel. They they stray away from they stay away from uh, any of the any of the more disturbing uh, teachings doctrines in the scriptures such as the doctrines of hell and things like that uh, of this nature, a judgment and th and 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 the the things that are are deemed as as un unpalatable mm -hmm. for this new snowflake generation, and and their churches are very much oriented to. to Appealing to millennials and appealing to the the sentiments of the of the snowflake generation, I think everybody understands what I'm talking about here. So oh, yeah. God is is nothing but love, and there's no other aspects to God. God is one dimensional. You know that's how these Christian car, uh, cults start. They they focus on one aspect of God as if he's not a person, and you know multi 
dimensional, and I don't mean like in a science way. I mean like like there's he has dimensions to his personality, just like we do. You know, we we can be angry or sad or happy or you know all all that stuff. But also he's he's loving. He's also judgmental. You know, in a good way, in a holy righteous way. So you have some cults that just focus only on the love and ignore all the rest. You have other cults that only focus on the judgment, like Westboro Baptist, and ignore all the rest. And then because they have this whole God that they now have to, you know, compensate for because they cut everything else out of him, they take that one part and stretch it across all the rest of these facets. So now you have a God that judges everybody no matter what, or you have a God that loves everybody no matter what, and there's no other way to look at it. That, that's like the definition of these Christian cults. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, what's interesting is I feel like the emerging church, uh, so it's also called the emergent church. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the emerging church is, is conditioning Christians for the emerging technologies. Yeah. And the, the notion that we can and should enhance ourselves uh, to become like gods, to better know God. Right. That's what they're going to say, that, that if we if we enhance ourselves and then we're going to be able to communicate with God, commune with God, commune with the spirit on a higher level. In fact, this is already uh, this is already being uh, um, proselytized by the Christian transhumanists. Right. The Christian transhumanists are saying basically that um, that to become more like Christ, tra- becoming transhuman is becoming more like Christ. Uh, so they're missing the point because becoming post-human, becoming transhuman, and then ultimately post-human is becoming not like Christ at all because you're evolving out of Adam. That's right. And, and Jesus was a kinsman redeemer. Remember, Jesus is a son of man. He's a son of God, but he's also a son of man. He's human. And, and he's a kinsman redeemer only to the offspring of, of Adam. That's the proviso to the gospel. The gospel only applies to the offspring of Adam. It's the only proviso in the gospel, um, uh, the only stipulation. You must be human. And so there is no such thing as a Christian transhuman. The do- if, you want to sum- if you want to summarize the, the doctrine of apotheotheism, it-, it can be summarized in one word, Luciferianism. Yeah. That's the doctrine of apotheotheism. It is the doctrine of Lucifer. It is the Bible. It is the inversion of the gospel. And um, that's what the emerging churches are, are, uh, that's what they're teaching. And they're doing it in a very, they're doing it in a very subtle way. The teachings of a lot of these new modern churches are much more uh, reminiscent of the teachings of Alice Bailey. Mm-hmm. And much more reminiscent of the teachings of, of, uh, of Barbara Marks Hubbard, um, of, um, Tehar de Chardin and a lot of these uh, famous uh, New Age teachers, thinkers, uh, even Neil Donald Walsh. I mean, you know, a guy like Neil Donald Walsh would, would, would fit in very well in the emerging church. He would be a celebrated figure if he ever decided to, to become a quote-unquote Christian and join that church. And so um, the point is, it's not just the emerging church or the emerging church. It's also the elements of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is divided right now because this new pope, well, he's not new anymore, but uh, Francis is, is, is a Jesuit. And the doctrine of the Jesuits is, um, is uh, conscious evolution. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, 
their most influential teacher is uh, Tehar de Chardin, whose teachings were outlawed by the Catholic Church for a long time. Um, but um, but really always have been very important to the Jesuit order. And so now we have the first Jesuit Pope. And what is he doing? He's doing exactly what we would expect a Jesuit to do. The, the Jesuits uh, invented liberation theology and are have always been sympathetic to communists. Or at least not always. I shouldn't say always. I should say since the 60s. Right. You know, have been sympathetic to communists. And so... And and so you take this 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 sympathetic attitude towards towards communism, and you you mix that with the teachings of uh, Teilhard de Chardin, you know the no sphere and 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 conscious evolution, and you and you can see that this is this these are the doctrines of the current pope of, of Pope Francis. Um, so it's no surprise everything that he's doing, and, and of course this this uh, this notion that human beings are bad for the earth, and that uh, because of, because um, Pope Francis is is very much a proponent of uh, of the uh, climate change yeah garbage yeah the whole and, and, movement stuff yeah and and and, and yeah and, and exactly and. So you have this this idea that that basically what's 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 being the, the 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 notion is that the human race is bad for the earth. We're like a cancer to the earth, and I think people miss the point here uh, because the the answer is not to eradicate us. That's not that's not really where we're headed. It's not the eradication of the, of, of human beings. In other words, it, it's not just to destroy us, to kill us, or to stop us from propagating. That's not the point. The point is to force us to evolve. That's the point. Mm-hmm. The point is to sh- to demonstrate that the current uh, evolutionary condition of the human race is inadequate. Uh, that that we are dangerous in our current condition. We need to evolve. We have to evolve for the sake of the earth. Um, and so it's not pushing us towards destruction in the sense that. They want to just wipe away, wipe out, you know, millions and mil- millions of human beings. They want us to go extinct, mm-hmm. which is a different concept because um, they want the, the the current Homo sapien to go extinct, and for they want to give birth to the post-human Homo Deus, as uh, as it's being described in some circles. And of course, Homo Deus means God Man. So the idea is to push us, to force us, to, to, to funnel us into a directed evolutionary upgrade. And those of us who refuse to evolve will be considered the refuse mm-hmm. of, of evolution. We're, we're, we will be the, the um, vestigial refuse of directed evolution. And this, this, this is the future. There's no question about it. This is the future. And the future is not, you know, robots walking around, you know, like Terminator robots killing humans or anything like that. The, the game is not about eliminating the, the human race. The game is usurping dominion 
of the earth from the human race. And again, those are two different concepts. And that's where this is all headed. Um, remember what we talked about a couple interviews back, that you cannot steal the birthright away from the offspring of Adam. That the birthright is inherent in our genome. Mm-hmm. That we inherit the birthright. And what is the birthright? The birthright of the human species at large, not just Christians, the birthright of the human species at large is dominion of planet Earth. That's the birthright of the human species. And and that dominion, that birthright cannot be stolen from us. We can abdicate authority. We can do that. But in order to in order to usurp the birthright, that's a different thing altogether. So I write, I write here in my book, uh, this is in the last chapter entitled Jacob and Esau, which we'll talk about Jacob and Esau in a minute. Yeah. As previously established, dominion of the earth does not belong to one man or even to one family line, but to the whole of mankind. The birthright is inherent in our genome. We are the offspring. We are all the offspring of Adam, replicated with the seal of his likeness and endowed with the authority it guarantees. The wholesale purchase of the human birthright would require universal or majority consent from the human populace at large. Abdicating our authority to the dragon is one thing. Selling him our birthright, selling him our birthright is quite another. The first can be achieved through a voluntary transaction, but the second necessitates a genetic transformation. And I hope that's the way I wrote that is 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 clear. What I'm trying to say here is that you can abdicate authority. And we talked about this, I think, last time. You can abdicate authority to the dragon, to the insurgency, through idolatry. So if you decide that you are going to pay obeisance to the dragon, to Satan, rather than to God, then you are giving the dragon uh, legal authority to have influence in your realm. You're willingly inviting him to have influence in your realm. And that's what the that's what the Romans did by by worshiping Jupiter, who was the patron deity of the Roman Empire. And in the same way, Zeus was the patron deity of the of the, of the Greeks, uh, of, of the Greek civilization. Zeus was Zeus is Jupiter. Both Zeus and Jupiter are an aspect of Satan. And and so that's abdication of our authority, allowing the enemies of God to have influence in our realm which is really treason against against the kingdom of heaven. That's what that amounts to. Um, but in order for the dragon to usurp human authority, in order for any non-human race to usurp our dominion, to usurp our birthright, that requires a genetic transformation because the birthright is in our genome. We inherit it as the offspring of Adam. And it cannot be stolen. It, it, it can only be usurped. Authority can be abdicated, but our birthright must be usurped. Mm. And, and, and the way to usurp the human birthright is, is to, it's really a two-part, it's really a two-step process. You have the human species relinquishing the genetic markers that make us human. Mm-hmm. And you have something else becoming more human. So we're becoming less human. They're becoming more human. 
And by doing that, you have a transference. We are, we are, so to speak, evolving ourselves out of Adam while something else is becoming human. And uh, this is not unprecedented in the biblical narrative. It happened. We talked about this a uh, couple, couple interviews back. This happened in the Genesis 6 affair. This is exactly what happened with the offspring of the Watchers. Men, the, the genomes of mankind, the genome of mankind was becoming increasingly corrupted. And the offspring of the Watchers were, were human enough to usurp the authority of the human species, the, the dominion of mankind on earth. And I believe that's exactly what happened before the flood. And that that was intentional. It was intentional. It was the plan. Mm -hmm. This is the plan that the watchers had to usurp the dominion of the human species on planet Earth. And that that is going to happen again, to some extent, to some degree at the end of the age. But instead of it, instead of the watchers, the same ones who did it the first time, I believe this in this final in this in, in the final uh the final event the final scenario in which this happens something like this happens again it's going to be the dragon and his princess who do it mm. who give birth to a hybrid who progenerate a hybrid uh race the golden race uh, uh, and and i believe that uh, the dragon's own son uh, who who he procreates with a human woman his son Apollo is going to be the so-called Antichrist and is going to be leading humanity into the final stages of our post-human transformation. So um, the game is, again, is not about just destroying mankind, but usurping our birthright. And that brings us to that brings us to the, ti the, the title of the final chapter in my book, which is entitled Jacob and Esau. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and just real quick to put a put an end on the uh the grin stuff. It, it's it's interesting thinking about it like that, you know, between the choice between choice versus, you know, force. Because a lot of the times people think today when they read all this end time stuff that this is all done by force. But when you really like even just take the mark of the beast, when you really read what it says, it's it's choice. You have to worship the beast in order to in order to get this thing. It's a twofold process. You don't. It's not just that you receive the mark. You can't be tricked into it. Nobody can knock you out and give you the mark, and then you're damned to hell for all eternity. Uh, you, you you get the mark, and you have to worship the beast or his image, and. So there's a choice element there that it's not so much about force. And, and it also explains, too, when, I, when I've talked with transhumanists, basically universally, all of them have said, we don't want to force this on anybody. We want to do it. We'd want to do it by choice. I've never heard any of them advocate force. You know, we're going to force humanity to do this. And, of course, there, a lot of that's just because that would be wildly unpopular uh, and they're trying to get this thing going. But, like, even when I debated Zoltan Isban, he was really adamant that this this would all be done by choice, and if you don't want it, you don't have to have it. But I, I told him there's no way to really give somebody free will choice in this thing because you're creating a world around other people uh, in which they, they have no other choice. So, for example, if I want to raise Christian Christian children, uh, because right, right now we live in, in a world where you can get like an STD and you don't have to tell your sexual partner. It's like a legally protected thing. So it, it would it would... Makes sense if uh, the whole 
you know, gene editing thing was the same thing. You could, you could, you could uh, at some point in the future get some kind of upgrade and then not tell your partner, and then you have uh, transhuman kids or whatever. But so I, I point. yeah, I brought that situation up to him, and I said, so how, you know, if I want to raise children in a world uh, where where they actually have choice, they let, let let's say my my daughter does not want to have transhuman kids because she's a Christian and she wants to have uh, the family stay human. Well, if if the transhumanist is, is protected legally, and because we were talking about a lot of legalities and stuff around it, but if, if the transhumanist is protected and doesn't have to tell my daughter that he's a transhumanist, how is that not taking her choice away by uh, not, not allowing her to have just, just human children? And he didn't really have an answer to that. It was just kind of more, well, you know, just generally we, you know, we, we, we want to cure cancer and we want to cure death. And it always goes back to those humanitarian efforts because who could argue against that? I mean, I will, but I, I don't care if people tell me I'm a bad person because of it. But that, that, that usually works on people. You know, once you, talk, once you start talking about curing cancer and uh, undoing death and stuff, then people kind of fold. But, but me, I was like, I, I never really got a solid answer. So it makes sense uh, where, where you use choice in order to force. You know, you, you use choice in a way where you could always say, well, it was his choice, just like the serpent did in the garden. He used choice. He didn't force uh, Eve to eat the apple, but he used choice in order to, in a way, force her to do it, to, to, to deceive her into making the choice herself so that he technically wouldn't be guilty of that sin, even though he was guilty of that sin. So I, I see the same thing kind of happening today. Is that is that what you're talking about? Well, like we said last time, there's no mark of the beast until there's the beast. Right. And everybody, Christians are going to recognize the beast. I mean, true Christians will recognize the beast. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's not going to be ambiguous. Right. It's not going to be people wondering, is this vaccine the mark of the beast? It's going to be it's going to be objectively clear mm -hmm. that this is this person is the Antichrist and that they what they are preaching and what they are advocating is is entirely contrary to the gospel of Christ. And it will be extreme. Mm. It will not be ambiguous. So, um, and when the time comes, the choice is going to be, take the mark of the beast if you want to participate in Apollo's new enlightened civilization society. And that enlightened society is going to be inhabited by post-humans. Mm -hmm. You won't even be able to compete anyway. Uh, those who, who don't have the upgrades, which, by the way, I believe those upgrades, those gen genetic upgrades, and there's, you know, there's other kinds of upgrades, uh, biosynthetic upgrades, but the genetic upgrades, I think, are going to come from the beast himself. Mm -hmm. I believe it's going to be genetic components, genetic markers of the beast. So the mark of the beast, in my opinion, are the genetic markers of the beast. Um, his own segments of his own genome. And and there's a reason why we're going to need that, by the way. I, and the, 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 this, <laughs> there's so many little pieces and parts here um, that I go over in my book. Um, because as I said last time, eventually the human genome is going to become unviable mm -hmm. because we're headed for error catastrophe. And if people remember from the last interview, I said that, that 
uh, uh, population geneticists are quietly alarmed uh, about the about the the rapid rate of degeneration in the human genome. So we're headed for this this, this uh, catastrophic scenario called era catastrophe, mm-hmm. in which there are so many mutations in our in our genome. So many deleterious mutations, negative mutations, that we can no longer reproduce viable offspring. And uh, this is not science fiction. This This is human genetics. And so we're going to need an infusion. The only I think one of the only things that that could that will be able to save us is aside from completely abandoning the human biology and, you know, upgrading our consciousness to some kind of synthetic um, computers, uh, a nanotech body or, or artificial intelligence, which I'm not sure that will ever happen. To be honest with you, I'm not sure that that is possible. Um, I don't know. But I do know that an extreme genetic transformation is, is on the horizon. And so if we get to this era catastrophe where, where there's so many errors in our in our genetic code that that the only way to fix it is to get an influx of new information to patch our our mutations to fix our mutations and that influx has to come from something other than the broken down human species mm-hmm. there is a scenario in which apollo and his consorts arrive and offer to supply their own genetic information their own genes freely you know, so Apollo, Apollo. You know, I say it the, the way I put it in the book is uh, so that, that Apollo, so to speak, is going to show up and offer his own blood. That the blood of Apollo will be offered for the salvation of mankind. Again, an inversion of the gospel. Yeah. And but rather than his blood, it's going to be his genetic material, mm-hmm. his own elements, constituents of his own genome, the markers of the beast. The genetic markers of the beast, in my opinion, is the mark of the beast. Mm-hmm. And and people will willingly take it. Um, they'll line up to receive the genetic markers of the beast because there's going to be benefits. And again, um, I talk about the, 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 the new golden age and the new golden race, the, the new Atlantean world order, the resurrection of the old Atlantean world order. That Apollo is going to um, is going to inaugurate a new golden age in the earth, in which the gods mingle themselves with men. Apollo and his consorts, the age of Horus, uh, the son of Osiris. Uh, so it's this, it's a new golden age, a new Zeptepi on, on earth, in, in which in which. The, this, the, the golden race descends, and, and a lot of what I'm saying is harkening back to some pagan prophecies mm-hmm. in which the golden ace of race appears on the earth. And when I say the golden race, I'm talking about Apollo and his consorts, the offspring of the dragon princes and human women. And the golden race is, 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 is I believe, these, these individuals are going to have golden hair, just like Apollo did. Uh, they're going to have blue eyes. Fair skin. They're going to look very much like us. They're going to look like upgraded human beings. Mm-hmm. And that's how they're going to portray themselves. They are humanity 2.0. And, and they're going to offer us the, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to guide us into the next 
step in our evolution. And uh, and I believe we're already going to be, in fact, I believe that the very fact that we're going to be far along the path of post uh, of transhumanism by the time they show up, I believe that scenario is going to trigger the coming of Apollo. And that when Apollo arrives, it will it will consummate. Receiving his his genetic markers will consummate our transformation. That will be the, the consummation of our transformation from human to post-human. Mm. And and this is uh, this is what I refer to as selling our birthright for a bowl of stew. Right, and this is what connects to the very last chapter of your book uh, on Jacob and Esau, and and, and really what. Uh, the whole book points to the the culmination of how this all makes sense in this one biblical story that many of us have heard, but many of us have kind of just read over. And now that we have all this framework and we 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 have the foundation to build upon, um, tell us what you learned from the the story of Jacob and Esau, and and help us to see it for what what it what it really says. Jacob and Esau is really the capstone of my book. It's 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 the final piece of the puzzle. And it is a depiction of everything I lay out in the book from start to finish. Most people are, are generally familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than me try and re- recite the story here by memory and, and, and point out some of the details uh, that are relevant to the things I've been talking about, I'm just going to read this portion from my book. Great. And this is in chapter 13, entitled Jacob and Esau. So this is a little preview of... of, uh, of of what's in this chapter. The story of Jacob and Esau begins with Rebekah, the wife of Isaac and daughter-in-law of Abraham, who is barren. Isaac prays for his wife and she becomes pregnant with twins. But when the time comes to deliver the baby, something rather bizarre occurs. The first came forth red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth, and his hand had taken hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. I remember how perplexed I was as a young lad in Sunday school when my teacher glibly recited these verses as if what they were describing was perfectly normal. I suppose that, being a twin myself, I was especially alarmed to discover that the first boy to emerge from Rebecca's womb looked like the red spawn of Bigfoot. Twins are supposed to resemble one another, are they not? Something was wrong with this picture. Even if Jacob and Esau were fraternal twins as opposed to identical twins, the fact that one of them was red and hairy like a mantle should give us pause. As previously established, Esau means red. He would later be called Edom. And I talk a lot about Edom in this book, by the way. Jacob means heel holder or supplanter because he had taken hold of Esau's heel. He would later be called Israel. The story of Jacob and Esau revolves around the concept of a birthright. In ancient times, a father, before passing away, would bequeath his patriarchal authority and material possessions to his firstborn son as an inheritance, a birthright. Once given, the blessing of the birthright could not be rescinded. It could, however, be abdicated. As Esau was was born first, The birthright belonged to him. And I'll read a couple more paragraphs here just so we can frame this, the rest of this conversation. Yeah. When Isaac was on his deathbed and blind, the time had come to bestow the birthright to Esau. However, Rebekah favored Jacob and persuaded him to fool his father by impersonating his brother so that the birthright would pass to him instead. 
Jacob, realizing that his father would likely touch him to confer the blessing, made the obvious observation. Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. The word hairy in this sentence comes from the Hebrew sair, which is commonly associated with the male goats. Esau wasn't hairy like a man. Esau was hairy like a goat. Rebecca's solution to the problem removes all doubt that Esau was inhumanly hairy. She covered Jacob's arms and neck in goat skins. And then I, and then I mentioned that there are, there are a few people alive today, about 50, suffering from a rare genetic disorder called hypertrichosis, otherwise known as werewolf syndrome, which causes their bodies to be covered in an inordinate amount of thick hair. It is possible that Esau was born with hypertrichosis, but the double phenomenon of being a twin and having the genetic disorder are very rare indeed. There is, however, another possibility. Esau was not entirely human. And then I go on to talk about uh, this this interesting coincidence, this interesting coincidence, in fact, I say it, it cannot be coincidental that both Abraham's wife, Sarah, and Isaac's wife, Rebecca, were barren. Neither is it coincidental that in both cases, an ill-begotten elder, elder sibling threatened the continuity of the family line. In the first case, it was Ishmael, and in the second, Esau. So I'm, I'm painting the picture here that, that something very strange is going on here with Esau in, in the biblical narrative. This is not this is not a story just about two twins and two two twins and 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 one of them tries to 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 uh, to steal the birthright, that being Jacob. What I'm saying is there's something much deeper that we're being told here. What we have in the story of Jacob and Esau is a portrait of what's going to occur, what's going to transpire at the end of the age. Jacob represents Israel, i.e. Christ. And Esau represents Edom, the enemy of God, as we talked about uh, in the previous interviews, the, the arch enemy of Israel, i.e. the dragon. So here we have a depiction uh, that the dragon is going to attempt to usurp the birthright of Adam that belongs to Christ. So here comes the man-child again, right? The, 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 the vision of the woman uh, and the dragon from Revelation, that the dragon is poised to devour the male child as soon as he's born from the virgin womb of the woman. That's the Christ, the Christ child being born, and the dragon is going to devour uh, the seed of the woman. And we talked about how he failed to eradicate the human species in the pre-flood world. And what I didn't say, what I didn't, what I didn't get to in that in our conversation, our previous conversation, was the how the dragon changed his strategy after the flood. Because he before the flood, he had this opportunity to to destroy, to Eliminate the human species, which was part of his machinations with, with the Watchers. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I, I talked about how the Watchers had their own, their own machination and the dragon has his, his own machination. And they, they, they dovetailed. They were not exactly the same. The Watchers wanted to usurp the dominion of the earth. The dragon wanted to get rid of the human species so that 
the dragon slayer couldn't be born. The offspring uh, of Adam, who was to emerge from the from the womb of a daughter of Eve, who would crush his head, according to the prophecy uttered from the mouth of the maker himself. Okay, this is the dragon's problem, right? Right. So after the flood, the dragon kind of had a different strategy. After the flood, he focused his his efforts on one particular family line, and that was the line of Abraham. Because the dragon, I don't believe, knew which line, which, which, um, from which line the Christ would come specifically. Mm -hmm. Because everybody was the offspring of Noah after the flood. The human race was reset. We all are the sons and daughters of Noah, just like we all were the sons and daughters of Adam. Now we're all the sons and daughters of Noah, and, and by extension of Adam as well, but specifically of Noah. So the dragon waited, and he bided his time, and he would discover that the Christ is now going to come through the line of Abraham specifically. Abraham now knows it because God told it to him, and, and, and so does the dragon. So the dragon focuses, once he finds this out, focuses his efforts on foiling the dragon, what I call the dragon slayer prophecy, focuses his efforts now on the line of Abraham, the household of Abraham. And so this, this, this general desire, this general plan to eradicate the human species is now focused on what would become Israel. Mm -hmm. Now he's going to destroy Israel. And by destroying Israel or corrupting the line of Abraham, he can, he, can, he can foil the prophecy of the dragon slayer and stop the coming of the Christ. And this is what we see then, you know, in the, in the post-flood context. This is, what begin, this, is what he, this is what he does. And so what, he, what we have then is this strange scenario in which, in which the wife of Abraham is, is barren. And then the wife of Isaac is barren. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, there's this miraculous birth of an heir, a legal heir in the line of Abraham. You have Isaac, and then you have, and then you have Jacob. And in, in the case of, of, of Jacob, the apparent, the heir apparent to the throne, so to speak, of Abraham is not Jacob, but rather is Esau. Mm -hmm. So you have Esau is, is the heir apparent. He's the firstborn son, right? He's coming through the, the birth canal first. And because Jacob grabs his heel, he is called the supplanter. So now you have a scenario in which the dragon is zeroed in on the line of Abraham. So I'm going to pick up and I'm going to and I'm going to read uh, a couple more paragraphs because it's easier for me to explain this just reading what I've written than trying to recall all of these details. It gets pretty technical. Oh yeah, so I'm going yeah. to move back to the beginning of this paragraph, paragraph and then and then work forward here. Okay. It cannot be coincidental that both Abraham's wife Sarah and Isaac's wife Rebekah were barren. Remember, the dragon is poised to devour the offspring of the woman. Mm -hmm. He knows, he now knows that Abraham is the chosen line through which the Christ will come. Is it coincidental that Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife Sarah and Isaac's wife Rebecca are both barren? I see the hand of the dragon here, okay? Neither is it coincidental that in both cases an ill-begotten elder sibling threatened the continuity of the family family line. 
In the first case, it was Ishmael. And in the second, Esau. Remember, remember that Abraham uh, ended up uh, procreating a, an illegitimate son uh, with, uh, with Sarah's handmaiden, right? Mm -hmm. And that was Ishmael. Rather than waiting, rather than waiting uh, for the promised son, who was Isaac. Right. And, and that created a, a problem. Uh, Ishmael was an ill-begotten, illegitimate son. Furthermore, we must not fail to recognize the parallels between Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, and Esau and Jacob. Every one of these sibling contenders was directly influenced by Satan, who intended to corrupt the bloodline of the Christ and usurp the birthright of Adam. Just as John had beheld, the dragon was ever poised to devour the male progeny of the woman. Had Cain, Ishmael, or Esau received the birthright instead of their younger brothers, then the birth of Christ would have been prevented and the dragon slayer prophecy forestalled. Mm. Sarah, because of her barrenness in old age, was tempted to doubt the promise of God and persuaded Abraham to produce an heir through Hagar her Egyptian handmaiden. Ishmael was born as a result, but the scheme failed as soon as Sarah's womb miraculously came to life and Isaac was conceived. Having learned from his previous mistake, the dragon, <clears throat> having learned from his previous mistake, the dragon, it seems, took a more direct approach with Rebecca. And I'll stop there and I go on in the book. So this should give you an idea of where, where, my, thought, where, where my thoughts are. Uh, that you see Abraham now, the chosen line. Abraham knows it, so does the dragon. Mm -hmm. And so now, is it coincidental that Abraham's wife and then Isaac's wife are both barren? And that both of these, and that uh, there's an illegitimate heir that comes first, attempting to usurp the birthright of Adam and foil the coming of Christ uh, in the case of uh, in the case of Abraham it fails because God brings Rebecca's womb to life right uh, I'm sorry Sarah's womb God brings Sarah's womb to life right. and miraculously and brings forth a male heir uh, that would that 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 would uh, through, through whom the Christ would come. Mm -hmm. And then in the case of Rebecca, Isaac's wife, you have this, you have this, you have what appears to me to be the dragon taking a little bit more of a direct approach here because you have another illegitimate firstborn son coming through the womb to, to, to usurp the birthright of Adam. And this illegitimate heir, this firstborn son, looks like, as I said, the red spawn of Bigfoot. Right. So something's happening here. Something very strange is occurring here. And and thank God, and I get and I get into this uh, in the at, by, at the end of this chapter. Thank God that Jacob reached up and grabbed his heel, mm -hmm. because Jacob is an archetype of Christ. And we're going to see this later on because because the story of Jacob and Esau, as I said, is.
is a portrait of what is to come. That, that the dragon is plotting to usurp human dominion on earth to install his own hybrid son on the throne that belongs to the son of man. Mm. That is the end game. And just like Jacob reaches up and grabs Esau's heel, so at the very end, when it all when 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 it when all seems lost, the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the Father, is going to grab Esau's heel and is going to return, destroy the empire of the beast, the hybrid son, Apollo, the hybrid son of the dragon, and restore dominion for the human species, for the human race, for the sons of Adam. And that's jumping way ahead to the end of the book, but, uh, but getting back specifically to Jacob and Esau, Right. Jacob is called the, the supplanter because he grabbed Esau's heel. Mm -hmm. But the truth is Esau, Esau is the usurper here, not Jacob, Esau. Esau is an illegitimate firstborn son. And his, his, his conception somehow, I believe, was the result of the dragon came about as a result of some kind of, of scheme hatched by the dragon, just like it was probably the dragon, Satan, who tempted Abraham to produce an heir through Hagar, rather than waiting for the promise of God, which created to this day all kinds of problems for Israel, right? Right, yeah. So in the same way, you have... You have Isaac's wife, barren. Rebecca is also barren and also has this illegitimate firstborn son scenario. But that's not where the story ends. And I'm going to read uh, the, the scripture here in, in my book. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Now understand that Esau is, even as, as an adult, he's this he's this this unusually hairy, strange person. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's apparent in the, in the scriptures. And, it, and his personality is, 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 is very interesting. He's got a very aggressive personality, Esau does. And uh, as opposed to, to, uh, to Jacob, who seems to have much, much more of a mild personality. Esau's like this, this ferocious warrior type. Uh, um, I would, what, the word that comes to my mind when thinking of Esau is bestial. He's very, he's very bestial. He's like this hairy, hairy, uncouth, um, um, uh, voracious, aggressive character, right? So Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Interesting, it's red stew. And that, 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 that connects to Esau and Edom, by the way. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So this is a depiction of human authority, by the way. Mm -hmm. Esau comes in. He's starving. Jacob's making stew. 
and Esau's so hungry, his appetite gets the best of him, and he does something, uh, something um, that 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 the way I describe it is, you know, the 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 devil is probably stand standing there face palming as he's witnessing Esau his 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 well crafted plan come apart because Esau's hungry, right? <laughs> and so Esau sells his birthright to Jacob. And notice that he had to swear by an oath and abdicate his birthright to Jacob before Jacob could appropriate it. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's very important. So he abdicates his birthright. And then Jacob, of course, the story goes that 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 Rebecca then um, while while Esau is away, Rebecca clothes Jacob in Esau's clothes, which which have his peculiar scent. And then she goes and she takes goat skins and she wraps Esau's, uh, Jacob's uh, forearms, hands and forearms in goat skins. That's how hairy this guy was mm -hmm. to mimic his brother. And she sends him into to, uh, to Isaac's tent to receive the birthright. And of course, we all know the story. Isaac is, is blind. And when Jacob walks in the tent, he smells him, first of all. And it smells like Esau. And then he touches him, and and he touches the the goatskins on uh, Jacob's forearms, and Jacob's voice sounds different, but he smells like Esau and he feels like Esau. So, the blessing Isaac confers the blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. And if that had not happened, Josh, then the dragon, then the Christ would not have been born in the line of Abraham. Mm -hmm. If Esau would have received the birthright rather than Jacob, that would have that would have effectively foiled uh, the prophecy of the seed of the woman. But Jacob received the, the blessing instead. And because Jacob received the blessing, Israel came into existence. And because Israel came into existence, uh, Ultimately, Christ was born of Mary in the line of David. Okay, and I know this is complicated, and I lay it out. I, I really take my time to lay all this out in the book. It's very difficult to consolidate all of this uh, in an interview without just reading my book. Sure. <laughs> um, but I want people to understand that once Christ was born, so 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 the the dragon had to change his strategy three times. Okay, the first time I'm going to eradicate the human species, and I'm going to use. Uh, I'm going to use the watchers. I think that I think the dragon probably tempted the watchers to do what they did. So that was plan plan A. That didn't work because God preserved the seed of the woman, the genome of mankind in Noah. Okay, that didn't work. Second strategy. Now that I know who the what 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 bloodline Christ is coming through, the bloodline of Abraham, I'm going to focus my efforts on Abraham. I'm going to corrupt that line. I'm going to corrupt the family line. I'm going to usurp the birthright. Through Ishmael, that didn't work. Then through Esau, that didn't work. And then after that, it was still focusing on the family line. I'm going to destroy Israel. I'm going to I'm going to fill the promised land with Nephilim and make it so that so that Israel can't come into existence, right? According to the scriptures, that failed. So that was that was that that was that was his second objective. Objective B, which was to focus on Israel uh, in Ab the line of Abraham. That failed when 
the Virgin Mary gave birth to the dragon slayer. Gave birth to the Christ, to Jesus of Nazareth. Once Jesus was born, the dragon strategy changed again. Actually, it was, he changed it four times because this is the third change. This is, this is objective C, which was to tempt Christ. Now he knows that here's the dragon slayer, the son of God, born as a human being through the womb of a daughter of Eve. Here he is. The, the, the man child is born. So the dragon, what, what can he do now? He has to try and tempt Christ to defect from the kingdom. To tempt him to, be, to, to join his insurgency. And he tempts him by offering him the nations. And for those people who are confused, because this is probably going to cause a little bit of confusion, which I, I clarify in the book. How is it that the, that the devil had the nations to offer Christ if humans have dominion on earth? It's very clear what happened, and I, and I detail it in the book. Satan, when he was tempting Christ in the wilderness, said, all, when showing him, took him up on a high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of, of the earth. Right? Let's define that. What is the dragon showing Christ when he shows him the kingdoms of the earth? He's showing him the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire had conquered the known world. This was the height of the Roman Empire when Jesus was born. Caesar Augustus. This was the height of the Roman Empire. So the devil is showing Christ all the kingdoms of the world. He's showing him the glory of Rome, of the Roman Empire. And he says to him, all these and the authority of all these, all these and the authority thereof has been what? Given to me. And I can give it to whomever I please. Who gave the dragon authority? Who gave Satan authority over the nations? We did. We did. He was, you're never going to find anywhere in the Bible where God gives him that authority. He does it. The Psalms say that the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the sons of men. Not to the devil, not, not, not to anyone else. He's given it to the sons of men. Who gave the devil authority over the nations? We did. Who was the patron deity of Rome? Jupiter. Jupiter was the patron deity of Rome. So Satan is showing Jesus the glory of the Roman Empire. He is the patron deity of Rome. All of the Caesars liken themselves as Jupiter. In other words, they are the inheritors of, 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 they are the offspring of Jupiter, basically, is how they depicted themselves. In fact, a lot of the Caesars, like uh, Octavian, uh, are depicted in a statue as Jupiter, the offspring of Jupiter. So, so the Romans, the Roman emperors, abdicated authority to Satan in the guise of Jupiter. And that's clear. That's a historical fact just like the Greeks did in the guise of Zeus. So, so this is where Satan got his authority from, from us. And now he's telling Jesus, I can give you all of this. Of course, Jesus, uh, Jesus rejects this temptation. He refuses the offer by Satan. And thank God he did, because if he didn't, you and I and every other believer would have no hope in the gospel. There would, we, would, there, we would not have a redeemer. Right. We would be lost. But, of course, Jesus uh, rebukes the devil and refuses his temptation, refuses his offer. 
Okay, so I said there were three plans. Actually, there are four because that was the third one. And, and it, con it continues because when Jesus, when Jesus uh, could not be tempted, then the devil tried to kill him. And uh, obviously he didn't realize that by killing Jesus, uh, he was fulfilling the plan of God. Because the Bible says that if the powers knew, if they would have known uh, what they were doing by killing Jesus, they wouldn't have done it, paraphrasing. So, so that, was the, that was the third machination of the dragon. And of course, according just, just like uh, it was depicted in the vision of the woman and the dragon in Revelation that John beheld, Jesus is caught up to heaven after the, he was, he's resurrected from the dead and he's caught up to heaven. And he's sitting at the right hand of the father, waiting for the command of the father to return. Yeah. Okay. Now we have the fourth machination of the dragon. He could not prevent the birth of Christ. He couldn't tempt him and he couldn't kill him. So now it's, it's on to plan four, plan D. What is that plan? Prepare for war. That's the fourth plan. The dragon, he couldn't. He couldn't, he couldn't foil the dragon slayer prophecy by eradicating the human race. That failed. He couldn't, he couldn't corrupt the line of Abraham and prevent the birth of Israel. That failed. He couldn't prevent the birth of Christ or tempt him or, or, or foil the prophecy by killing him. That failed. He's only got one option left. He must prepare for war to resist the return of Christ, which is inevitable. Mm -hmm. He knows it. It's inevitable. Christ is coming. When the Father gives him the command, Jesus is returning with the armies of heaven. The dragon knows it. He's only got one more option left. Prepare for war. Resist the return of Christ. Kinetic war, not spiritual war, kinetic war. And that is Armageddon. And that's what's coming. And so... Uh, and and in the same way that Esau was preempting the birth of, of Jacob and attempting to usurp the birthright of Abraham and by extension of, of Adam, in the same way, the plan of the dragon in our time is to usurp the human birthright by producing a claimant to the throne of Adam who's human enough to appropriate our authority. And that is his own hybrid son, born from the womb of a daughter of Eve. And I designate him, and I believe the Bible does as well, as Apollo, yes. the half-breed son of Satan. And I believe Apollo, and I think it's clear, the revealing of Apollo is going to happen. Yeah. And and this ties into what we were talking about, the alien threat. I believe that we are going to be facing at the end of the age, the age in which we are now in, the age of Pisces. At the end of the age, we are going to be in a scenario where we are, A, running out of time. Our genetic rope is running out. We're headed for error catastrophe, genetically speaking. The clock is running out. We're, we're, we have, we're degenerating. There are so many deleterious mutations in our genome that the human uh, genome is going to be inviolable. That's the first problem. The second problem, we have an alien threat. The greys are infiltrating uh, uh, our, uh, the greys are infiltrating uh, society and through the abduction program are creating hybrids that are undetectable. 
and are in possession of technology the likes of which we have no defense against. And they are they have a plan of planetary acquisition. So pretty soon it's going to become very apparent that we need a savior. Humanity is going to need saving in a big way on these these two fronts. Enter Apollo and his consorts. The hybrid half-breed sons of the dragon princes are going to show up to save us. The golden race is coming. And the the dichotomy between our our grotesque alien invaders, you know, the gray aliens and the big bulbous eyes and this frightening aspect of these very inhuman looking creatures and that of our saviors, the golden haired, blonde eyed, fair skinned, tall, handsome offspring of the dragons, Apollo and his consorts is going to be it's is going to be uh, apparent and people are going to be enamored with these saviors, with these saviors who show up to deliver us from the alien threat and to supplement our DNA with their own genetic markers to upgrade us to the overmen, to the posthumans. See, it's, it's again, it's the, it's the inversion of the gospel. Right. In order to enter... The kingdom of Apollo, the, 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 the resurrected and, and reestablished Atlantean world order, the, the new golden age, in order to enter the kingdom of Apollo, you must be born again. You must be reborn in his likeness. You must be a member of the golden race in order to participate in the new golden age. Therein lies the mark of the beast, in my opinion. Just like in order to enter the kingdom of heaven in Christ, you must be born again through the resurrection. You must be resurrected to life in Christ in order to be restored to the family of God and enter the kingdom of heaven. In the same way, it's an inversion of the gospel. You will be required, if you're going to participate in Apollo's new Atlantean world order, you're going to have to have his genetic markers because the people who receive these upgrades are going to be superior. They will be superior to, I call them in my book, I call them, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a new class division, the neo-humans, the new humans, the post-humans, and the neo-humans, the Neanderthalic humans, mm. the old outmoded refuse of, of, of directed evolution. Those who refuse to evolve will be considered outcasts. They won't be allowed to participate in this new enlightened society. Why? Well, practically speaking, they won't be smart enough. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to compete intellectually with the post-humans. Right. They're not going to be able to hold offices of government. They'd never be elected to any office of government. They're not going to be able to be professors or even be students in a university. They won't even be able to keep up with the children in grade school who are enhanced. You simply won't be able to participate in society. You're an ape. You're a Neanderthal. You refuse to upgrade. You refuse to evolve. So you must go extinct. And you're just going to be ostracized from society. That's what's going to happen. And the temptation is going to be very great because, because those who re receive the genetic mark 
workers of the beast, Apollo, are going to have their lives extended. It's there's going to be many benefits. You're going to probably not you're not going to be uh, you're not going to be subject to these these genetic diseases. You're not going to be subject to a lot of the the frailties and the maladies of the present human condition. You're going to have extended life. You're going to have probably better vision, better hearing. You're going to be stronger, faster, smarter. So do you want to evolve into, into the overman? You, do you want to be as different from, 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 from the current version of man as man is from the ape? Do you want to be a neo-human or do you want to be a neo-human, a Neanderthalic, science-denying ape compared to the overman, compared to the post-human? compared to those who have received the genetic markers of the beast. And I believe that's what's coming. Mm. And, then I, and then I portray, you know, then, then this leads to Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Because now you have a scenario in which, I'm kind of giving away the punchline for my book, so I hope people go and get the book and read, <laughs> read the whole thing through, because there's a ton of details in my book uh, that lead up to all of this. But the punchline of my book is this, because it's too important to hide the punchline. It, right. the, the, it's the purpose why I wrote the book. <laughs> At the end of the age, there is scarcely going to be a human being left on planet Earth. That's why the Bible says, unless those days were shortened, there would be no, I believe, candidates left for salvation. Right. Everybody is going to be post-human. Because I think there's going to be germline genetic uh, engineering happening. You know, if you receive the the upgrades of Apollo, just like you said, and you and you copulate with, let's say, a, a female that does not have these upgrades, you're still going to pass on your genes to your offspring. It's yep. going to be hereditary, just like it was in the days before. No, that's right. This hereditary propagation of the of the of the genetics of the watchers contaminating the gene human gene pool in the same way the genetic the propagation of Apollo's genetic markers, the genetic markers of the golden age, the half-breed offspring of the watchers uh, of the dragon and his princes are, is going to propagate through the human gene pool. And if those days are not shortened, there will be no, no candidates left for salvation on the earth. All flesh will be corrupted. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And so, we're going to have a scenario on Earth, on planet Earth, in which there, there is scarcely a human being left. The citizens of Apollo's new golden age, his new Atlantean empire, are going to be post-humans. Those are the citizens of Apollo's new golden age. They're going to be less human than Apollo. They are going to forfeit their the human race collectively is going to forfeit the genetic markers that make them human. And, and authority, the authority of Adam on earth will be usurped by the half-breed offspring of the dragon princes. Because remember, and, and I've skipped a whole deal here about the Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the, uh, his dream of the statue that's cast in different metals, remember? And the feet are iron mixed with clay. Right. We didn't even talk about that. There's a lot of things I didn't talk about in this book that play into this scenario. Um, this is a hybrid empire. And remember that Apollo is the, is the chief. He is the, the leader, but there's also 10 kings, which corresponds to the dragon 
in, in Revelation, who has seven heads and ten horns, it corresponds also to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar cast in all these different metals. The final empire are, are the feet iron mixed with clay. How many toes do feet have? <laughs> ten. Right. There are ten kings, hybrid kings, ten hybrid kings at the end of the age. Just like the ten hybrid kings, the sons of Poseidon in Atlantis. The ten hybrid kings. That's why I said there's a there's a mirror here. The Atlantean world order that's coming, okay? That will be established by Apollo. So Apollo is is the leader of these ten hybrid kings, and I believe Apollo and these ten hybrid kings are the half bring offspring of the dragon and his princes. And that's why when the beast rises out of the sea, who's presiding over the rise of the beast from the sea? The dragon is presiding over the rise of the beast in Revelation from the sea. And the, and the beast is almost a mirror image of the dragon. Mm -hmm. That's because these kings are the hybrid offspring of the dragon and his princes. And the reason why they're their offspring is so that they can usurp the birthright of Adam on planet Earth. Take dominion of the earth and install the son of Satan on the throne that belongs to the son of God, who's, who's also the son of man. So at the end of the age, you have a scenario. And I probably don't want to give this away yet, but, but, but there's a very interesting scenario in which John is in heaven. And uh, I guess I will, because it's, it's, it's too important not to. A scenario in which... In which <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say it and then I'll read it. And, and, I, and you know, it's probably not a great marketing. Uh, uh, it's probably not good for marketing my book because I'm giving away the punchline, but it's too important not to. Well, and I can tell people, too, you know, I can corroborate what you said, that there's so much. I, I know, like, we've, we've done hours of interviews, but we really have only scratched the surface. There's so much uh, in the book that we didn't have time to, to get to. People should get the book. At, at the end of at the end of the in the book of Revelation, um, well, before I go there, so at the end of the age, as I said, there's going to be scarcely a human being left on the planet. Apollo is going to be ruling the nations with no one to oppose him, no one. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the Bible says that the Antichrist, the Beast, is allowed, permitted to rule for a time. Right. He's permitted. Why is he permitted? Because he has legally usurped the authority of Adam, and he's human enough to appropriate it. Mm. That's why. He has usurped the authority of Adam, just like the, the offspring of the watchers did in the pre-flood world. He's legally taken dominion of the earth because his mother's human. His father is the dragon, in my opinion. His mother's human. So... He has usurped dominion of the earth. He's ruling over the inhabitants of the earth. It's a dystopian nightmare. And John beholds this in the book of Revelation. And he's looking down and he's seeing what's happened on the earth. And, and I've got to read this. And again, I'm giving away the punchline here of the book, but it's too important not to. It's why I wrote this book. And so if you'll permit me to flip to this and again, I lay all of this out in great detail. So there's there's a lot of things I'm not saying. Mm -hmm. 
um, that you're going to have to read the book to, to understand the intricacies and the mechanisms here uh, that that um, that connect all of these pieces together. And there's there's very important principles here that I that I expound upon in here. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I'm just gonna read this portion of my book, and again, I'm kind of giving it all away here, but but it's too important not to. And and again, if people get the book and read it, by the time they get to the, to the end here, I think it's 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 going to be pretty powerful. Before Christ returns to dash the nations to pieces like a potter's vessel, the earth will resemble a dystopian nightmare. There will be no atheists in the new golden age, as predicted by Blavatsky. All will worship the dragon and the sun, Apollo. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be blasphemed as a tyrant and an imposter. Jesus will be hated, his name outlawed, and those who follow him hunted like wild animals. Apollo will rule the planet with no one to oppose him. In Revelation 5, John is caught up to the throne room of heaven to witness a scene of tremendous implication. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Have you ever wondered why John weeps over this scroll? Why does it elicit such profound sorrow? John's reaction always seems so irrational to me until I realized that this scroll is the title deed of planet Earth. John is weeping because mankind has lost dominion of the realm he was created to rule, and no one is able to reclaim it for him. But that is not how the scene ends. Even if there are, are no more human beings left on Earth, there is still a son of man seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Just when it appears that all is lost for the offspring of Adam, Jacob grabs hold of Esau's heel. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, stand, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were all holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I write this. Jesus is able to take the scroll and open its seals, because he is a son of Adam, the root and the offspring of David. 
a legal inheritor of the human birthright and a rightful claimant to the throne of his ancestors. He has all authority in heaven as the son of God and all authority on earth as the son of man. And of course, what happens next is Jesus takes the the scroll, which is the title deed of earth that only he can open. And he's he's because he's a son of man, because he's a human being, he has the authority. He's a son of Adam. He can take dominion of the earth, even though nobody else on earth can do it. And most of the inhabitants of the earth are post-human. There's still a human being sitting at the right hand of the father, waiting for the word, waiting for the father's command to return to the earth and take dominion for us. That's why we reign with him. And so he begins to break the seals. And the breaking of these seals represent the destruction of the best seal empire on planet earth, which each seal is a, is a new judgment. And what's happening here is that the beast's empire is being destroyed. God is, is destroying it. Just like in the pre-flood world, when God brought cataclysm to the planet to, to bring to ruin, to destroy the empire of the gods, the offspring of the watchers in the pre-flood world, so he will do at the end of the age he will bring cataclysm to the planet and it will begin to destroy the empire of the beast. And when the empire of the beast lies in smoldering ruins, a trumpet blast will be heard in heaven. The father is going to give the son the command and the son is going to lead the armies of heaven back to the earth. And, and this is Armageddon because the dragon is anticipating this. So the battle that ensues at the end of the age this culminating moment in, the, in human history is a kinetic war. The dragon and his forces and the beast and his post-human legions are preparing to resist the return of Christ. This, this is not a battle between the nation of Israel and, and the other nations around it. This is not a battle about, this is not about Israel and, and the other nations of the earth. This is about the dragon his hybrid offspring, the post-human legions of the planet, resisting the return of Christ. That's what Armageddon is. That's what Armageddon is. It's way bigger than Israel. Israel is a type of Christ, by the way. It's a type and shadow of Christ. And it's also a type and shadow of Adam. So, so the battle of Armageddon, it's not about Israel. It's about Christ returning to take dominion of the earth. And the beast, the dragon and his, and his hybrid son resisting him in the final battle. This is the dragon's final battle. This is his, this is his last stand against, against the, the, the dragon slayer. Here comes the dragon slayer to put an end to the beast kingdom and to, and to put down the dragon and, and, and fulfill the prophecy that was spoken all the way in the beginning, right? So, so you have this. This scenario in which, and I, I believe it's, I, I'm trying to remember if it's in Isaiah, but, but it talks about, I have it in my book, the, the, the exact address, biblical address of this scenario in which, in which it talks about the beast is, is preparing to resist the prince of princes. He's taking his stand against the prince of princes. 
Who is the Prince of Princes? The Prince of Peace. It's Jesus, the Son of God, who's returning to the earth. So you have the beast who is marshalling the, 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 uh, the military assets of his empire. He's gathered, which he has gathered together in Armageddon. And I believe, I postulate in the book, that the dragon is making a stand also uh, somewhere else. And I'll, and I'll leave that a mystery until people read the book. So you have this, this dual scenario. And, I, and, and by the way, this duality of the beast marshalling the post-human uh, inhabitants of the earth to make war with the return of Christ and the dragon marshalling the other faction, his faction, this duality is apparent in the Bible. There's a conspiracy happening between the kings and the rulers. These are two different groups, the kings and the rulers. These are two different groups. The kings are the kings of the earth and the rulers are the powers that are behind the throne. So you have the kings of the earth, the hybrid kings of the earth led by Apollo. And then you have the the, these ins the insurgent members of the elder race, these fallen morning stars led by the dragon. These are, these are two groups that are resisting the return of Christ. And again, this is not resisting, this, this is not a spiritual war. This is a kinetic war. The, the beast is going to field the armaments of, of the elder race on earth, the, the son of Apollo. So we're talking about, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, the, the, the battle of Armageddon is not going to be tanks. And missiles. I think it's going to look like more, more, more like flying saucers and advanced weaponry resisting the return of Christ. It's that's what Armageddon is. It's not to destroy Israel. It's to stop Christ from returning and fulfilling the dragon slayer prophecy and destroying once and for all the empire of the beast and establishing his own empire. That's Armageddon. And uh, that's the culmination of of uh, of the book, and that's and that's really the culmination of human history, the first part of human history, because because Christ, when he returns, he he destroys, he he, he destroys the armies of the beast, and he sets up his own kingdom, and he rules from the throne of Adam, from the throne of David, as a son of Adam, the heir to the kingdom and the, the line of David. And he restores dominion of the earth for us, to whom it was bestowed in the beginning. So Christ restores our birthright. And that's why, again, we reign with him. We are the, we are the regents of earth. And, and that is why Christ establishes his kingdom and rules rules and reigns for a thousand years. He does what Adam was supposed to do. He restores everything. And, uh, and I go into great detail about all this. So that's the punchline. And hopefully I've adequately explained that the Jacob and Esau scenario, if I haven't, trust me, I go to great lengths to do it in the book. And uh, I've got a lot of, there's a lot of scripture verses in this book that I incorporate uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that tie this narrative together, that, that, that tie the, the narrative that I just uh, laid out together in the, in the context of, of the scriptures. And so um, it's the greatest story ever told. I mean, I think people, what, what, what people need to understand 
is that we are heading for a post-human paradigm and a kinetic war with God. That's what's coming. That's what's coming. War with God. A bunch of uh, post-human legions following the beast, following the half-breed son of the dragon, Apollo, making war, kinetic war with God. And this and 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 um I, some of this began with a question. Some of the, the content of this book, much of the content of this book, began with a simple question that occurred to me you know, 10 years ago when I was contemplating these things, reading Psalm 2, which we really haven't discussed much, which is crucial to all of this. Contemplating Psalm 2, where the, where the, where the kings of the earth and the rulers are conspiring together to do what? To, to make war with God, right? And so the question that arise in my mind was, what kind of weapons do you bring to a war with God? And what is emboldening the nations that they can even make war with God? And the answer is Apollo. And the, the answer is that the, 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 it's, the nations are going to be deceived and believe that the dragon, who they will fully acknowledge, they're going to worship the dragon at the end of the age. That's apparent revelation. The nations are going to worship the dragon and his son, just like it's the inversion of the gospel, just like we believers worship the father and his son. And and so this is going to embolden the nations that the dragon is greater than Yahweh. That 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 indeed Yahweh exists, that the, that the hosts of heaven are real, they exist, but so does the dragon and his insurgency. And they're going to be convinced that the dragon is greater, that Yahweh is an imposter. Yahweh is a tyrant. He was he was oppressing mankind, suppressing our our divine potential. But that the dragon is going to is illuminating us and is liberating us and that he is the true benefactor and friend of mankind. And the nations are going to follow the dragon into war with God. There are no atheists. In the new golden age. Do not believe that atheism is the future. It's not. Apotheotheism is the future. Not atheism. The gods exist. And we shall become like them. That's the creed. The religious creed of the future. And who is like the gods? The son of the gods. The sons of the gods. Apollo and his consorts. So this is a. All very complicated, uh, and I, I'll take a break. I, I apologize. Uh, I apologize again, Josh, for sucking up all the air here, but uh, it's it's a complex web I'm weaving here. Well, no, I mean that's what that's what you're here for, uh, and I mean throughout that that whole section, I, I was just even though I read the book and I knew where you're going with it, it's still on, on the edge of my seat because, like you said, it, it is the greatest story ever told, and not because Timothy Alberino wrote it, but because this is an explanation of of uh, what's in the Bible, what what God is doing, and it helps fill in a lot of the the blanks that that we get from church. You know, a lot of times when we go to church, we get these blanks. We'll, we'll get we'll get some information, but we don't. Get Get everything filled in the actual context, and this really helps. And the amazing thing is, um, we don't have to wait. You know, we as humanity, anybody listening, anybody watching right now, you don't have to wait for all of this stuff to come to pass to make that decision today. Uh, which side of this war you're going to be on? And now that you have the information, and now that you know, you can um, 
take part in your birthright and make the right decision and uh, uh, join on the right side of this uh, side of this cosmic war. That's exactly what receiving Christ is. If you are not with him, then you are against him. That's what Jesus said. This is this is a this is a this is a cosmic war. And there's only two sides. You're either in the kingdom or you're in the insurgency. You either stand with those who are loyal to the king or your lot is with those who are his enemies. There's nothing in between. There is there's no ambiguous gray area in between. So accepting Christ and believing in the gospel is is affirming that that Jesus is Lord as opposed to the dragon and his son. And this is going to become very apparent at the end of the age. You know, this is the affirmation that the early church was making um, in, in regards to when, when they were being forced to worship, when they were, when they were, when the Romans were trying to force the Christians to worship the emperor as Lord. So, so you have a foreshadow there mm -hmm. in the early church. Who is the emperor? According to Roman mytho according to Roman theology, was the emperor was the son of Jupiter. So you were worshiping. They were trying to make force Christians, oblige Christians to worship Caesar as Lord. And the Christians uh, famously refused to do so. Many of them, and were tortured and maimed and burned uh, in the Roman candles in the palace and fed to the lions in the Colosseum because they would not worship Caesar as Lord. And this, this is this is what's coming in the end of the age. That was a that was a that was a dress rehearsal for what's coming with Apollo. And and the believers on the earth, those who remain faithful to the gospel, who remain faithful to the king, will not acknowledge Apollo as Lord. They will refuse to accept him as the Christ. And so. Uh, the, the the great deception at the end of the age doesn't revolve around aliens. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, because aliens are still playing a big part, a big role in this, according to, 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 to my analysis. It doesn't revolve. I don't believe aliens are the great deception or anything else. Uh, the great deception revolves around the, the question that Christ asked his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Therein lies the essence of the great deception, because Apollo is going to claim to be the true savior of humanity, the true Christ. There's the deception. The deception is in the identity of the son of God. That's the deception. Apollo is an imposter Christ. He is going to he is going to be to come in the place of Christ, not not only against Christ, he's going to claim to be Christ, the true Christ, the true son of God. And God is not Yahweh. God is, for lack of a better name, Lucifer. And, and Apollo is his anointed son. That's the deception. That's the deception. It's going to be much more powerful than any alien deception. And by the way, by the way, um, to some degree, it is an alien deception because, in effect, the golden race, Apollo and his consorts, are aliens, are are because they're not human and they come from, you know, I believe also that 
Apollo and his, and I, and I talk about this in the book, Apollo and his golden race consorts are going to reveal to us that, in, in fact, Yahweh didn't create us. The dragon did. Lucifer created us. That he seeded life on earth. And that, and that the human race was supposed to grow and evolve and to become gods ourselves, just like Apollo. So that's going to be that's going to be a part of the the deception. So in a sense, yes, the idea that aliens are coming to save us, that being the deception. Yes, that's true. That's part of the deception. But but the mere fact that aliens exist isn't a deception. That's not the deception. The deception revolves around the person of Christ, the identity of the Son of God. And, and it's going to be very, very black and white at the end of the age. Those who believe in the gospel are going to proclaim that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God. He alone is Lord. As opposed to Apollo being the Son of God and he alone being Lord. And not just Lord of, uh, not not just Lord in a general sense, but Lord of the earth, the rightful ruler, the rightful claimant to the throne of Adam, is Christ, is Christ Jesus, specifically Jesus of Nazareth, not the Christ consciousness, not some abstract version of Christ, not some Maitreya figure, but Jesus of Nazareth, who was born from the virgin womb of Mary. The fulfillment of the dragon slayer prophecy. Jesus alone is the Christ. And that is, uh, is, is going to be very important at the end of the age. Because again, the question, who do men say that I am? There is the crux of the matter. Right there. And that's why um, those of us who, who are Christians, we have to anchor ourselves in the gospel. Because, because if we're anchored in the gospel, because the waves are coming, the sea is going to get tumultuous. Coronavirus, uh, the, um, the Great Reset, the, the, everything that's going on right now is nothing. This is nothing. This is not the end. Believe me, this is not the end. <laughs> the end's a lot worse and a lot more crazy than anything we're seeing right now. This is nothing. You know, so if people are shaken now because coronavirus and stuff, man, you better anchor yourself in the gospel because the sea is about to get a lot more tumultuous and you have got to be anchored or you're going to be tossed to and fro by the waves. So you've got to anchor yourself in the gospel. And people say, you know, at this point, they may be saying, well, why write about all this other stuff? Because the, the through line, the narrative of this book that I've written is the gospel of Christ. And I demonstrate, I try to demonstrate um, how, how the person of Christ and understanding what the gospel is. And by the way, let me end by saying this. What is the gospel of Christ? Because we talked about the emergent church and what's happening in Christianity today in every, in every aspect, from, from, from the Catholic church all the way down to the myriad of denominations, of Protestant denominations. We're losing the gospel. Everything that's being taught in, in so many of these churches revolves around um, ancillary things. And we've lost the story and the power of the gospel of Christ. 
very few churches anymore actually teach the gospel. And everybody knows that Jesus died on the cross, but most churches today that I've visited and, 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 have, and have observed recently, that's a minor issue. It's more about social justice now. It's more about um, issues that are relevant to modern society. It's, it's more focusing on the, as I said, the ancillary issues surrounding the gospel. We have forgotten what the gospel is. We have forgotten who we are. And when we realize that we are the prodigal son, that we are indentured to the swineherd, and that we are eating the slop of pigs, and that we are destitute when we recognize our depravity, realizing that mankind, that Adam began in the household of God, that he was a son of God in the family, and that he was sundered because of sin, sundered from the family of God. And now we are in this condition of sin and death, degeneration. When we recognize our depravity, our desire should be to repent, right? Just like the prodigal son. Even the servants in my father's house are living better than this, right? With this desire to be to be to return to the father's house, and that is that is manifest in repentance. You have to you have to acknowledge your destitution, your depravity before you can repent. Today, many modern churches, they're not, they're not revealing our destitution, our depravity. They don't want to talk about our depravity. How can you repent if you don't recognize that you're eating the slop of pigs? How can you want to return to the Father's house if you don't realize that you've been sundered from it? This is where repentance begins. You realize that you are a prodigal son indentured to the swineherd, to Satan. And you realize the magnitude, the height of your fall from where you started, your, your father, Adam, who he was and what he was. That's where it begins. And then you recognize, you recognize the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ, through the cross, through the shedding of his blood on the cross, he died in our place he paid the penalty for our sin. He redeemed us on the cross. And with his blood, he purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the first thing he did. He redeemed us in order that we might be reconciled to the Father and to the family of God. Reconcile, because reconciliation means to be brought back into fellowship. Reconciliation is friendship restored. Because right now, we are not the friends of God. We who are born into this condition of depravity and destitution, the prodigal sons, we are enemies of God. The Bible says we are enemies of God. So Christ paid the price for our sins on the cross. He redeemed us from the dragon because our condemnation without Christ is with the dragon. Okay, We are condemned with him. That's why the Bible says that hell was created not for us. It was created for the devil and his angels 
But those of us who reject Christ, our lot is with the insurgency, with the dragon and his insurgency. So Christ redeems us. He purchases us back. He pays the price of our penalty so that we're no longer condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're redeemed so that we might be reconciled to God. And we're no longer enemies to God. Now we're the friends of God, like Adam, who walked in the cool of the day with the maker. Restored to the family of God. And that's the third thing. See, we're redeemed, we're reconciled in Christ, and then we are restored. We, everything that was lost in Adam is regained in the Son of Man. Is, regain, is regained in Christ Jesus. So everything that we lost in Adam, we're going to get it back. And more so through Jesus Christ at the resurrection. And so that is the hope of a believer. And those of us who believe in Christ, we put our faith in what I just said, the gospel of Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believing that through him, we will be reconciled to the Father and restored to what we were created to be in the beginning, to Adam, the Son of God. Jesus is the second Adam. Our blueprint is going to be reset at the resurrection to what it was supposed to be, to the blueprint of Adam. So our genetic blueprint is reset to the original blueprint of the human species, to what Adam was created to be. And this happens through Christ at the resurrection. That's why he's the second Adam. He restores us to the blueprint of Adam. And we're all going to be, in fact, at the resurrection, we're going to be more human than we are now because we are mutants. We're genetic mutants right now. We are so de uh, degenerate. We have degenerated from Adam so much that when at the resurrection, all of these imperfections, all of these genetic imperfections, as we talked about, I think, a couple of times ago, are going to be remedied. The human condition will be rectified in Christ. And see, this is what the transhumanists are trying to do. They're, they're talking about, um, they're talking about, uh, what's the word that they use? Uh, um, improving the human condition. Well, the co human condition is sin and death and enmity with God. You can't improve the human condition with technology. You can't restore your relationship with the maker through technology. That happens exclusively through the son of God who paid the penalty for our sin. And, you know, they're talking about the transhuman, the transhumanists and the, and the futurists and, uh, and the globalists at this point are talking about this, this, this post-human condition, humanity 2.0, in which we're going to evolve into, into a superior form of homo sapien, homo deus, the God man. Right. And I talk about that in my book, but it is an, again, it's an inversion of the gospel. Because there is such a thing as humanity 2.0. Jesus Christ is humanity 2.0. He is the reset of the human species to what we were supposed to be in the beginning. And that is, that is, the, that is the glory of, of, of what's coming for those who believe in Christ. Those who, who, who die in Christ are also going to be raised in Christ and restored to everything that was lost in Adam. See, that is the power of the gospel. 
and you don't you don't hear it anymore. I mean, rarely. I mean, certain places you do, of course, uh, but but you rarely hear that. And and so again, the problem is that you cannot come to repentance until you realize that you are destitute and naked and poor, like Jesus says in, in the in the book of Revelation, and that we need to buy from Him gold. We need to be reclothed. We are we are the prodigal son eating the slop of pigs. And so for those who are listening to me who are not believers, this is the gospel of Christ. I mean, this is the story of mankind. Jesus Christ is the greatest hero humanity has ever known. And so, you know, that this is this is my motivation for writing the book. I mean, this is this is uh, this is this is the the, the core of what's. Uh, this is this is the fire that's burning inside of me is, is to remind people of the gospel and 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 to to ignite a newfound fascination in 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 people's hearts for the gospel of Christ. I mean it's it's not it's not just something that's interesting and intriguing. It is absolutely necessary that we recover the gospel before those days are upon us. Amen. I, I totally agree. Let's say that there are people out there right now who are feeling convicted about this. They're listening to this. It makes sense. And they recognize that even in their own lives, they've either never uh, given their lives to Christ, or maybe they said a prayer years ago, but never really thought about it since then. And they don't really understand what the process looks like. Let's say that they're they're at that point where they recognize that they're sinners, they recognize that their standing with God is not uh, in the place that it should be right now. Uh, what is their next step? How do they get this process uh, started with actually um, uh, being reconciled with Christ? What, what do they do? They do what Peter did when Jesus asked that imperative question, who do men say that I am? And his disciples replied, some say you're the prophet. Some say you're Elijah, right? And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And here's the declaration. This is, this is the declaration of faith from a believer, all right? Peter's response, you are the son of God. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father. So there's the answer. You recognize who Jesus is and you put your faith in him. That's it. You recognize that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, the one of whom the prophet spoke. He is the fulfillment of the prophecies pertaining to the Messiah, and he is the son of God. That is saving faith. That is the declaration of a believer. It's, it, it's, it's that pivotal question. Who do men say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You know, even the centurion, and, I, and again, I discuss this in my book, even the centurion who approached Christ and who asked Jesus that he had a servant that was sick at home and, 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 and if Jesus would heal that servant, paraphrasing. And Jesus said, well, I'll come to your house. Let's go to your house. And what did the centurion, centurion, okay, of the Roman Empire, a pagan, what did the centurion say? No, 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 no. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I'm a man under authority. 
I understand authority. I understand paraphrasing who you are, because what was Jesus saying? He's who's, he, who's Jesus always referring to and talking about? My father, my heavenly father, my father who is in heaven, right? So the centurion recognized that Jesus was the son of God, the son of his father in heaven. And so he said, I'm a man under authority. Whose authority was the centurion under? Caesar of Rome, right? He was a centurion in the Roman Empire. And he recognized that Jesus was the son of God operating in the authority of his father. And he said, I'm not worthy for you to come to my home. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And what did Jesus say? I haven't even found this kind of faith in Israel. And then he said this. He said that, that paraphrasing, this guy, again, paraphrasing, this guy, this centurion of the Roman Empire, this Italian, is going to be sitting at the table with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven. And the implication is, and many of you are not talking to the Jews because they, many of them didn't believe in him. But this centurion of the Roman Empire is going to be sitting with Abraham in the kingdom, at the banquet table, in the kingdom of heaven. What was Jesus saying? That that centurion's recognition of Jesus' authority, his recognition of who Jesus was, was saving faith. That's what Jesus was saying. And so in the same way that the centurion recognized that Jesus was the son of God, endowed with the authority of his father. If we recognize that same thing, that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, born of Mary, the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, that this man truly, this is the son of God. Another centurion remarked, remember? Mm -hmm. Surely this is the son of God. When Jesus hung on the cross, that's the declaration of faith. And that is saving faith, believing in Christ. That's what it means to believe in Christ. You recognize who he is and who he is is who he claimed to be. Not who other people say he was, not who the men say that I am. He is the Messiah, the son of God. That's saving faith. So the short answer after that long explanation is believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. You recognize your depravity. You repent. And you cling to Christ, believing that he died for your sins to redeem you from condemnation with the dragon, to reconcile you to the Father and to restore all that was lost at the fall. That's faith in Christ. Absolutely. A a amen. And it's, it's uh, beautifully said. And if you know, if you're watching this now and you can make that declaration, if that's something you can confess, then welcome to the family. You know, now, now you can uh, get in your Bible, read the gospel, read, you know, start doing Bible studies, you pray, you know, develop this relationship you now have with Christ. But it all starts there exactly as Tim said with that, uh, with that recognition and with repentance, turning away from sin. Uh, Tim, this, is, this has been absolutely 
phenomenal. I, I really can't thank you enough for taking all the time to, to go through your book and to talk about uh, every everything in it. And like, like I said before, um, there's a lot of things that uh, we just didn't have time to get to. People really should get the book to get the full story because uh, we really did just touch like the, the tip of the iceberg here. Where can people uh, get your book and follow you online? Well, my book is available on Amazon. Um, it's the only place it's available right now is Amazon.com. You can go to Amazon, just type my name in, in the search, and you should find my book. It's called Birthright. It's called, I always forget the subtitle because it's so long. I got a Tom Horn subtitle there. <laughs> it's called Birthright, The Coming Post-Human Apocalypse and the Usurpation of Adam's Dominion on Planet Earth. And uh, so you can find it on Amazon. Um, I have a website, timothyalbrino.com. If you want to follow me, really the best way to follow me is I have a YouTube channel. I don't know how long that's going to last. So the best way to follow me is to sign up for my mailing list on my website. And, uh, and it's somewhere I'm going to be moving things around on my website. So you might have to search for it, but there's a, there's a sign up for the mailing list notification on the website. Currently it's at the bottom, but maybe by the time people see this, I'm going to move it up. So it's more conspicuous. Um, so that's the best way to follow me because, you know, even if YouTube takes me down, which it probably will again, they're already shadow banning me all over the place, um, which is interesting because <laughs> I think they're shadow. I'll be honest with you, Josh. I believe they're shadow banning me because of my my witness for the gospel more than anything else. Um, and they don't like it. And because I, I, I've been gone for two years, basically, and I show up on the scene and I find that I'm still being shadow banned all over the place. And I don't even say things that are half as controversial as as Tom and Steve and Ellie Marsoul and guys like this. Uh, uh, it's, I agree with those guys, but I haven't said the, the things that publicly, um, some of the things that they've said. Um, and yet I'm being shadow banned left and right, which I can only assume that it's that it's 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 for the kind of things that I'm talking about here in my book. So the best way to follow me is to is to is to sign up on that mailing list. That way you'll be in direct contact with me without the interference of, of big tech. Excellent. You got time for a couple of uh, viewer questions? Sure. Excellent. So we did get some uh, viewer questions. And by the way, I can corroborate what Tim's saying about the shadow banning thing, because uh, many of you follow me on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook friends list has been filled up to 5,000 for years now. And so I've, I've got more than enough people. And when I type, when I typed in, uh, I'm interviewing Timothy Alberino, you know, that I used his full name, uh, who hasn't been on the scene for a long time. Many of you have asked about him. Uh, we're finally able to do an interview. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to put them in the comments and we'll ask them during the show. Crickets. But, and I knew something was up with that because I, I get private messages from people asking, uh, asking about you and, you know, asking if everything's okay. And, but then when I said, um, last call for, uh, questions for Tim Alberino blew up. I got, I got a bunch of responses. So <laughs> I think they, uh, I think they have specifically your name, uh, uh, and, and they're shadow banning that or targeting it to, to some extent. And, uh, they're well, doing screw them. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're doing the same to me. They've deleted, uh, entire videos. They've deleted channels of ours. And, uh, but that's okay. Like, like I've said before, we've built our own thing at dailyrenegade.com. Uh, so we do that. Let's, let's get into some viewer questions here. Um, this is from Facebook and, uh, Twitter. Uh, we'll start with, uh, I'll just do first names. Uh, we'll start with Bill here is saying, uh, uh, I'm wondering what, what Tim thinks the abomination of desolation is. I don't know. 
<laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> no, you got you got no thoughts on it? <laughs> uh, not not really. There's a lot of things in Revelation that uh, I I didn't. I, I do a I do a very um, a very uh, I don't get into the into the depths of, of of a lot of what's in Revelation in in my book. I I just kind of survey the contours, the perimeters, the main points. Um, Revelation is a very highly esoteric book, and it requires to some extent it, it requires a mind much more potent than my own to unravel some of this. So I don't get into the weeds of all the details. And so you, you, when you talk about the specifics, like the abomination of desolation, I will say that um, a lot of what's in prophecy has a fulfillment in what was, what is, and what is to come, or at least what was and what is to come. There's a lot of type and shadow in prophecy. So uh, one of the abominations of desolation, I think certainly was when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig uh, on the altar of Yahweh in the temple. I believe that that was a foreshadow of something uh, that was that's coming at the end of the age. And so that was certainly, I think, a partial fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes killed uh, tens of thousands of Jews, slaughtered many Jews, sacrificed a pig on the altar of Yahweh. and and which was, of course, an, an, an extreme offense to the to the Jews, and, and and it was an abomination. So I think there's certainly some some uh, some fulfillment of that prophecy in Antiochus Epiphanes. But Antiochus Epiphanes is a foreshadow of Apollo. Yeah, definitely. Um, Julius on Twitter is asking um, reading. Uh, reading the first chapter, so I guess you just got your book, you just started it. Uh, question, if angels are our older siblings, how can we understand 1 Peter 1.12? And I just brought that up. 1 Peter 1.12 reads, uh, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through uh, those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, the angels are fascinated with the gospel that 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 this king of heaven that that the son of god would humble himself to be born as a human being in our condition uh to restore us to to redeem us reconcile us to god and restore us to adam this is a great mystery to them this was a great mystery to the to the angels remember they would represent in the in the in the um parable of the uh, of the prodigal son they're the ones who never left at least the ones who never defected and so um i don't see any contradiction whatsoever whatsoever with uh with the angels longing to look into these things uh, i think they're just as fascinated if not more fascinated than we are with the gospel because remember christ did not die for the angels he died for us he didn't, he didn't become an angel to redeem angels. He became a man to redeem men. So um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see any contradiction uh, whatsoever. 
Absolutely. Uh, Wendy May is asking uh, or, or writing, fantastic, can't wait. She's talking about the, the interview that I uh, posted about, uh, this one that we're having now. Um, I watched his teaching from True Legends 2019 and haven't been able to find any other info uh, from Tim Alberino. Uh, no longer on YouTube, question mark. Is he on any other platform to keep up with uh, information? Well, I'm on YouTube um, for now. I'll probably create a Rumble account, probably. I'm, I'm on Parler. I haven't posted anything on Parler yet. And I'm on Twitter. Excellent. Um, I'm, I'm not real active on social media. I don't really like social media, but I try to be every now and again, if I get ticked off about something going on, uh, I might post on Twitter or if I have something that I want to announce. But again, the best way to follow me is through that mailing list because there's no intermediary. There's no big tech intermediary there. It's me directly communicating with people who want to follow me. So, and I've got other things in the works, by the way, working on a TV show, working on some really cool stuff. That's I'll be dropping some information about that too on that mailing list. Excellent. Yeah. And we talked about some of that stuff in part one. So if people are curious about that, uh, you can go back and, and watch the, it was like right in the beginning of uh, the first interview. Um, lots of amazing things coming out. Uh, really exciting stuff. Um, Tor is uh, asking, would uh, I would be interested in knowing whether Tim believes if the church era saints will actually take the place of the fallen angels, I'm, I'm assuming they, they mean the place that they originally had, uh, and obtain positions of rulership with Christ over the millennial world as part of their birthright inheritance with Christ. Well, something that we never discussed is that I think that the kingdom of heaven is comprised of of many realms. And so, uh, um, you know, we have an inheritance with our older brother. He has an inheritance too. And so uh, ours is different to some extent. We're human. We're, we're the angels are not uh, human beings. That's why I call them the elder race. I distinguish them from human beings as opposed to the human race. So our inheritance in Christ is somewhat different, but there's also similarities. That's why Paul says, "With whom the in whom the in Christ in whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named," and so um, we're certainly part of the family. We're going to be sons of God together with them in the kingdom. So I think a lot of confusion comes from this idea, this the, the notion that we're going to judge angels, and so I think that that one reference that we're going to judge angels, people assume that we're going to be higher than angels which I'm not so sure that that's what that means. I think we're going to judge angels. We're going to judge the angels that transgressed in our realm. Right. Those are the angels we're going to judge. Uh, we're going to judge the ones that committed a crime in under our, in our jurisdiction. Uh, so, and that makes sense in, in the, in the, uh, in the context of, of, of kingdom and empire and, and us being the regents of the earth. So, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the angels that have not defected, the sons of God in heaven who have not defected, they're in the kingdom right now. They're in the kingdom. And so, yes, they minister to us. Yes, to some extent, they, they serve us, just as we minister to one another and serve one another. Isn't that what we're supposed to do as believers? We minister to the brethren Absolutely. and we serve the brethren. It's a family. So... Um, I kind of lost track of the question and all that, but uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, that answers it. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because it was just about like if we're taking place of these angels, and I, I think you you uh, definitely answered that uh, 
Drew Donner is uh, saying, Tim once mentioned an article in a magazine about an explorer or maybe a group of people that ran into a large human while coming out of the Amazon. Was that story from National Geographic or a different magazine? I'm, pl I'm pretty sure it was National Geographic and it was in Peru and it was, I forget the explorer's name. You can still find it online. He, he reported having, he was looking for a lost city. He went up in a, and I was going up a mountain, something I was doing recently, actually, and, and ran into a very large man who put his hand up and indicated that they were not allowed to go any further. That was a story. I believe it was in National Geographic. I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly. You can kind of look it up online. It's hard to find. But I've read the article several times. It is an article from one of those kind of sources, and it was reported um, by a very credible person. Excellent. Uh, Jason Bellinger has uh, two questions. First, uh, what does Tim believe about the true origin and purpose of the Great Pyramids? Now I'll let you answer that, and then I'll uh, ask a second one. I don't know about the Great Pyramids. Um, there are several possibilities when you talk about megaliths in general. Mm -hmm. We all assume that the megaliths were built by the bad guys. You know, there's, you know, it's, it's actually a, the, the title of uh, my, of, of the first uh, True Legend series, uh, first installment of the True Legend series, Technology of the Fallen, which um, I, I've since come to realize that, that megaliths and things of this nature aren't necessarily, can't, aren't necessarily attributable to just the, the bad guys. I mean, what if, what if some of this stuff was built by the good guys? Because the antediluvians were exceptional, remarkable human beings. The good ones, the line of Seth, not just the line of Cain. Mm -hmm. And we're much smarter than we are, much much more physically robust than we are, and probably in possession of, of advanced knowledge that didn't come from the Watchers, but came from God. You know, the Watchers brought corrupting knowledge, but God didn't leave mankind. He didn't, he didn't leave us to wander around in ignorance. God gave Adam knowledge, knowledge that would be um, profitable to him. The watchers gave mankind knowledge that would lead to corruption. So, and who knows what that, who knows what the, the kind of things that Adam and his offspring, the, the, the line of Seth knew. Um, so in terms of the pyramids, I don't know. I mean, um, how old are the pyramids? I don't know. I tend to agree with Graham Hancock that the Sphinx and the, the layout of the Giza plateau are exceedingly ancient definitely antediluvian but that maybe the pyramid itself was built up in a in in in, 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 in exactly in the time frame that egyptologists think say it was or maybe not maybe it was is a pre-flood construction i think the sphinx definitely is a pre-flood construction and the temples in front of the sphinx again i agree with hancock in that respect um they're megalithic so I don't know exactly what the purpose of pyramids or who built them was. I do speculate in my book about some of that, in the footnotes especially. Um, and I may be writing about some of that in the future. And, by the way, I do address that, some of that, in the, the TV series I'm developing right now. By the way, when we talk about pre-Adamic stuff, that, who knows? Who knows? I mean, I mean, is something pre-Adamic? Uh, there's no way to know. I, I tend to think that there probably isn't anything left, anything pre-Adamic pre left on the earth. I believe that the mountains literally melted like wax um, when Rahab exploded. So if the mountains are melting like wax, uh, that means that you're dealing with a heat, with, with, with a level of, of, of heat 
that's going to melt megaliths as well. It's going to melt stone. Mountains are, are that's the substance of what megaliths are made out of, you know, the granite and the, and the andesite and so forth. So if that, if the mountains are melting like wax, and you can, you can be assured that any, everything else is melting like wax as well. So I believe that the, it's likely that if the earth was subject to this incredibly, this unimaginably destructive cataclysm before it was renewed, then I, I, I've got to believe that every, all, every residue of an, of a, of a pre-Adamic civilization was totally eradicated. Yeah. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Uh, his question too is, uh, what effect did Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension have on the non-Earth realms, uh, maybe different planets or inhabited planets, or uh, spiritual realms? That's a tricky question. I don't believe there are spiritual realms. I just believe there are realms. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that you can separate the spirit um, from the, 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 the metaphysical from the material. I think they're two sides of the same coin. So I don't believe that there's a separate realm or a separate spiritual realm. Uh, I think that all things consist in Christ and that there's one universe. And I, and I do, there's not, in other words, there's not a separate universe for the physical and a separate universe for the, for the spiritual. It's, it's all one reality. And, um, and I make that point in the book and I go into that in, in length in the book. Um, so, um, what was the rest of the question? Uh, yeah, like, question yeah. What? 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 Um, I'm gonna scroll back up. All right. Yeah. What effect did Christ's death, uh, resurrection, and ascension have on non-Earth realms? Yeah. The, the, the short answer is I don't know. Um, there's definitely something there. I haven't really taken much time to contemplate it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something there, and I don't know exactly what what that means. Um, but, but, but the, but the, the, the redemption that what Christ achieved, what Christ accomplished has cosmic implications. That's apparent in the scriptures. What those cosmic implications are, I don't know. Yeah, same here. I, that's something I've often thought about too. Uh, and there's one, there, there, there's actually like three other questions, but they were all things that we've answered, uh, throughout the, uh, series, so it would just be repeating the same information. But there is one more <laughs> that I've asked you before, and I'm going to keep asking until you finally break down and tell me, because you haven't even told me this in private. And uh, Maria is asking, what happened to Tim in the jungle? He promised to reveal it last summer. I never made such a promise. <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah, I saw. I saw she she wrote that. And I that's was like, clever, I, that's a clever question. But yeah. I never, never made such a promise. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've alluded to some things and I've never said, never, not one time publicly, when I say what happened to me in the jungle, I've never. So, pe so people, if they think it has to do with, you know, some of the things I've mentioned before, like the demon possessed people I've had to deal with in the, in the, in Peru and things like that, uh, or the odd stuff about the ayahuasca, none of that is, is a reference to what happened to me in the jungle. So um, and that is something that I, I don't know that I'll ever reveal. It was a very personal thing, and, and I don't know that it's profitable, profitable for me to, to, to reveal it. Uh, I suppose I should have never teased anybody with that. Uh, but it was, the, it was the moment, it was the most defining moment of my life, and it, and it was something very, very bad and something very, very good that happened in that order. And, um, and it, 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 it set me on the course that I'm on now. And, and all I can tell you is 
I set out into the Amazon. You know, I left when I was 18 and then I was in the Amazon when I was 19 and 20. And 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 I my my mission, my purpose in life at that time was to encounter God. That was it. Encounter God or die trying. And I know that sounds weird. Why would I go to the Amazon? But I had my reasons. And um, and I never there was no narcotics involved. Believe me, no ayahuasca or anything like that. Uh, I, you know, I never, never I've never taken anything like that. I've never smoked marijuana or anything like that ever. Not one time. in my life. Um, and so I, I set out into the Amazon to encounter God. And I, I'm, I'm talking like a burning bush encounter. I wanted to hear the audible voice of God. I wanted to encounter God. I wanted to have a burning bush encounter. And the only thing I'll say about it is I encountered something unexpected. And then I had an encounter with God that was also unexpected. That was incredible. And that changed my life in the Amazon. Well, I, t- I definitely totally understand, um, you know, ha- having something personal like that and then not wanting to reveal it to the world, keep, you know, ha- having something that's just between you and God. I, I have things like that and I, I totally understand. Um, what, was there anything with that that you, that you learned uh, or, or anything that you were able to take from that that you wouldn't have I, been able to any other way? I learned the power and potency of deception. Deception is not just believing a lie. Deception is a palpable power. And um, I was confronted with the reality of my adversary. And and I was, I was, it was during that period of time that the gospel of Christ really became, I grew up in the church, you know, my dad was a pastor, a very good pastor, and I had a great upbringing. But it was the first time in my life I truly began to understand the gospel in, in a way that that has forever impacted me and, and has put me on this the, the course of writing this book. And so and so it was it was uh, it was it was an encounter that that demonstrated to me a the power and potency of deception and b the glory of the gospel of Christ and the goodness of God. Amen. Well, I I will be respectful and leave it there. But just uh, just so you it would know, take me, it would take <laughs> me as long as we've been doing all these interviews. It would take me that long to tell the story. As long so, as we remain friends, I'm going to keep trying to get it out of you, even though maybe I know. one day I'll write about it. But uh, I, don't know. I mean, it's just uh, it's just and again, it's it's very personal and I'm not sure, sure it's even profitable. Uh, to talk about it to publicly. Yeah, to- totally understandable. Well, thank you for sharing what you did. I, I, and thank you for, again, for doing this whole uh, series. I know when we when we first started talking about this, it was going to be just one interview. And then after I had a chance to really read your book and go through it, uh, like I said before um, in the first interview, it reminded me a lot of the structure of Mark Flynn's book. And with his, uh, we ended up doing a, a long series as well. And it, it really needed that. I have not come across another book uh, where I've thought the same thing, you know, where I've thought it, like it really needs that series until uh, Birthright. And so I really I appreciate it. go back you. and listen to that. I don't think I've ever listened to that series you did with Mark. And I've never met Mark personally. Um, but uh, interesting that Mark and I are identical twins. 
Right. Well, he, he, he's an identical twin and you're an identical twin. You, you yes. guys aren't like <laughs> identical with each other. Brothers Anthony. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I think, I think you and Mark would really get along well. Um, but yeah, so I, I just really appreciate you taking the time for this and, uh, sharing your book with us and for, uh, doing it on, on, you know, my show, you got full, full reign to pick any show that you want. And I'm honored that it was mine. So th thank you so much for being well, on. Today. I thank you, Josh. And I think you do a tremendous job. And I think your audience really appreciates that you give the people you're interviewing the space to actually expound on, on, on what their, what their material is about. So many times other people will interview and kind of interject and, 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 and want to add in a lot of their own, um, their own material, which is fine, but but in order to get through uh, complex content in a, in a book like this, you really need the space to just lay it out, and and I and, and I really appreciate that uh, you giving me the time, and 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 allowing me to do that. My pleasure, anytime. Hey, next time uh, things start moving, or or whenever you get some new developments or something, anytime you want to come back on the show, uh, even if it's just for an announcement or just whatever, if you got something burning on your heart and you want to come and talk about it, uh, open door. You you always have an invitation. I appreciate that. Well, thank you again, and thank all of you for watching. Uh, what an amazing series, and it's not amazing because of anything with me. It's amazing because of our uh, our, our guest, Timothy Alberino and his book, Birthright. I highly suggest you go and pick it up. There's a lot of areas, believe it or not, that we did not have time to uh, get through, even in this multi-hour-long series. So you want to get the book, and you want to see where all of these uh, trails lead. So make sure you do that. The website, again, is timothyalberino.com. You can find his book on Amazon. Please sign up for his newsletter. And if you want more amazing content like this, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and become a member today. We have, uh, it's not just this show. We have, I think, five different shows now. So you're going to find something that you like. What's amazing about it is it's, it's, it's all family friendly. So don't bother giving your money to Netflix. Uh, come, come hang out with us. Be a part of the family. We'd love to have you. And you get a lot of uh, great family friendly, family friendly uh, interviews, TV shows, talking head stuff documentary stuff, lots of great things. So that website again, dailyrenegade.com. Thank you all so much for joining us. And until next time, I love you all. Take care and God bless. Wow. Well, what an amazing conclusion. That is it, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. A big thank you to Timothy Alberino for taking the time to do this uh, amazing series with us. Uh, a big thank you to him and a big thank you to all of you who who are members or who are subscribers to our YouTube channel. If you want to have full access to the entire interview, head on over to dailyrenegade.com and you can get the full uh, series there. You don't have to worry about YouTube deleting it. You don't have to worry about ads. It's ad-free. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Head on over to dailyrenegade.com and get the entire interview series today. Uh, so all of that being said, thank you so much for joining us and make sure you subscribe to this channel. It's very important that you do so. Uh, and, and again, dailyrenegade.com is the place to go. Thank you so much. And until next time, take care. God bless. Love you all. Mm -hmm.